Hello, I'm excited you found your way here. I'm your host, Ashley Rennick, and you're listening to Waldorfy. In each episode, I explore and explain Waldorf education and its anthroposophical roots. Hello, everybody, and as always, thank you so much for listening in. In this episode, I'm going to be speaking with experienced Waldorf teacher Michael Gannon all about second grade and the second grader. You can find the show notes and resources page for this episode at waldorfy.com forward slash second grade. Before we get started, I quickly want to tell you about my favorite shoe company, Softstar Shoes. Softstar makes minimal shoes for happy, healthy feet. Every one of their shoes is handcrafted in the U.S. in their workshop in Oregon. They work hard to make Softstar a socially and environmentally responsible company, as well as giving a good experience to both employees and customers. What's their specialty? Handcrafted, minimal, simple leather shoes. Although I first discovered Softstar when searching for great shoes made sustainably for my toddler, I've become completely sold on their goodies for myself. In winter, I'm thoroughly enjoying my cozy Softstar slippers, but my absolute favorite shoe is the Primal Sawyer. Everywhere I go, everyone asks me where I got these cool shoes. More than that, though, they're beyond comfortable. They feature a zero-drop Vibram sole that my feet just love. I'm someone who usually has achy feet, but not in my soft stars. One of the things I love about soft star shoes when I discovered them for my son is how they're designed to allow your feet and toes to splay naturally and contact the earth comfortably. Of course, this is crucial for the health of young developing feet, and now I've come to realize I think it's what my feet really needed too. You can learn more and shop by visiting their website, softstarshoes.com. Plus, you can get 10% off your order at Softstar Shoes until April 12th, 2021 with the coupon code WALDORFY. That's W-A-L-D-O-R-F-Y. And that's good for items excluding clearance and accessories and cannot be combined with other Softstar discounts. So go check them out for yourself at softstarshoes.com. And again, that coupon code WALDORFY is just good through April 12th, 2021. Now, let me introduce you to my guest, Michael. Michael has been working at the Spring Garden Waldorf School near Akron, Ohio for the past 17 years. Though he didn't know anything about Waldorf education or anthroposophy when he first interviewed for his position, the deep consciousness about why things were done quickly drew him in. The thoughtful study of the development of the human being and a living interest in helping students to grow towards freedom has been a welcome source of challenge to Michael every day. Michael has been grateful to have had the experience of working with three classes of students, each of whom has provided him with new lessons and opportunities for growth. In recent years, he's also begun to work with other schools as a consultant, evaluating and mentoring teachers who share this path of inquiry. For the past two summers, he's also served as an instructor in the Center for Anthroposophy's Renewal course, spending a week each summer looking in greater depth at the way our understanding can form a curriculum to meet the seven and eight-year-old. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me today, Michael, about second grade and a second grader. Oh, you are most welcome. And thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm really excited. And thank you for the work that you're doing with the podcast, Ashley. It's really great to have a resource out like this that makes Waldorf education a little more accessible. Thank you. So in speaking about the second grader, this is a maybe seven turning eight-year-old, maybe even you have a child turning nine at the end of your second grade year or towards the end. So 
what developmentally is that child experiencing? Let's talk about that first before we kind of get into why you do the things you do in second grade. Sure. And I think that's probably the most important thing that I consider when working with the second grade or with any grade for that matter. The first thing I like to think about in considering the second grader is where are they coming from and where are they headed towards? Kind of getting that sense of context and space. Thinking that the second grader has moved out of that first grade, kind of leaving behind the imitation stage of early childhood, and they've really begun to take a sense of themselves. They're they're confident and they're capable. Uh, they have these incredible senses of memory and of personality. Their individual temperament is beginning to show. They start to really see themselves for who they are. And we as adults can start to see these glimmers of personality starting to shine that lets us get a glimpse of who they might be when they grow up. At the same time, they're, they're preparing themselves and we are preparing them for these coming changes that lie ahead from the nine-year change that'll happen often in third and fourth grade um, and into the preparations for adolescence. And so the second grader is kind of this in-between. They're like a fulcrum and they're, they're finding that balance between their childhood and those changes and phases that are coming. And so by looking at that and understanding that this is a point of balance, uh, I think it helps to understand why we bring things the way we do in the second grade, why it can be a year for really building foundations and for really strengthening skills that they already have, and also for planting some seeds that will be so essential as they move into later years and later stages of development. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember I remember less from second grade than I do from first and third grade. And I feel like it's because it is this odd window of like in between time, like you said, the first grade was so magical. It just felt like it. so you're living in this wondrous space, you know, and by the time you get to third grade and you're doing the sorts of things you do then, like the measurements, for instance, I'm thinking you have, your mind is working differently almost. So, and I'm wondering how, if, how you navigate as well the the different kinds of personalities and different kinds of children that you have within a class because especially with the nine-year change coming predominantly in the third grade year but you might see some of that earlier in second grade and then some kind of later in the third grade so as a teacher how do you navigate those differences um, in developmental experience between a group of children uh, great question. Uh, I suppose my first thought is by seeing each of them as an individual, I feel like one of the biggest challenges of working with students as a Waldorf teacher or anyone really is being able to hold an understanding of both how do these children fit into my expectation for where they might be or maybe even developmental phases that I expect and how are they showing their own individuality. And by finding the individuality in every child, by meeting them where they are, and by trying to really understand what question is it that they are bringing today? What question is it that they are bringing in this phase? And what question are they bringing in their whole life? If we can start to just hold those 
questions for ourselves, for each child that we work with, then we can start to get these glimpses of intuition that allow us to know that maybe today we shift a little bit to help that child's question in this area. Or maybe we can find a space in that lesson where we're going to slow down to allow a little bit more practice for that other child. There are places where you can really let the lessons be informed by who these children are who are in front of us. It's, to me, the most exciting and rewarding part of Waldorf education is that it's not a set-in-stone path. It's not a, a structured framework that you have to follow. It's a guide. It's a broad strokes uh, blueprint. And it's intentionally vague in areas because it allows the teacher to really customize that for those students. So I think knowing who the kids in the class are, knowing what is it that they may be facing as their own challenges, is really what allows us to then see it. The next step of that is, of course, uh, being able to respond needs. And so I think one important thing is to be constantly trying to learn and change. Sharing ideas has become one of my best routes towards that. So seeing what other teachers are doing, talking as faculties about ideas that we have and ways that we might be able to, to try something new, following into some of the traditions that schools have so that you can see what that really encourages, but also being able to hold questions about those traditions to find where do they maybe need to be changed. I think that if we can always be doing that, always be wondering about the questions that the students are bringing us, always be exploring them together with the other adults who are engaged in this, and always trying to think, how is this blueprint allowing me to meet the needs today? Then I find that it really helps to meet all of that variety. It really creates a flexible and responsive environment for all the students. And about questions, because I am wondering a little more specifically, as particularly pertaining to the questions that the children bring, what does that look like? Could you give a sort of example of, of what that is for teachers who are maybe not Waldorf teachers listening or homeschooling parents or alumni who are kind of listening to this and reflecting back on their own experience? What kind of questions are you as a teacher looking for the children to offer you? Are they just out and out questions that someone will walk up to your <laughs> desk and ask you? Or is it that, um, you know, more quiet student in the class that you know is kind of engaged in something and something you just observe? I think it can be both. I mean, I think it's a lucky day when the child walks up to you and says, I don't know how to tell that person that they hurt my feelings. Can you help me? But that may happen. And especially in a second grade class, sometimes they really are that direct. And for that student, hearing that one of the questions they're working with is, how do I assert myself? How do I find a voice in this situation? Maybe a question for the moment, but it may be that opportunity where you as a teacher are planting a seed for them for a future uh, life of advocacy, um, large or small. By what questions they bring, though, may not also be quite so obvious. Sometimes it may be a question that the student brings by showing frustration. A student who maybe we've practiced something several times and they're, they're just not 
understanding it yet. And they may show that by disengaging with the work, by not doing what they're asked to do, by losing attention. And that, to the careful observer, is, is a question that says, how can you show me this in a different way? How can you help me to understand? Not so that they learn that one skill or capacity, but rather so that they can learn that there are flexible approaches, so that they can learn that if we keep trying different ways, we can find our own path. So I think that that question, in a sense, is hearing the questions that the children bring it to me means trying to think, how can I help them? What is it that this child needs that is different? How does this student learn differently? How is that student uh, developing differently than others? And how can I help to bring them into balance? Thank you for that. I'm, there's such a, it's such a common way to begin understanding Waldorf education through the lens of what is described as engaging the head, heart, and hands of the child. And I feel actually that that's really a holistic approach to education altogether that schools that are not Waldorf schools are even beginning to utilize now. So I think Waldorf education even goes much deeper than that. But speaking to those things, how how do you engage a second grader's head, heart, and hands? Yeah, first, I, I, would, I would really agree. Um, you know, when I was in school, worksheets and textbooks were pretty much exclusively what we did, and projects were felt like a rare treat. Now, exploration, learning, and project-based activities are what most classes are working on. So I think that people have really begun to see that education is not just about learning what to think, but rather about learning how to think. And the layer that I think we do really well in Waldorf schools is also how to think, but not just in one way, and how to think, but be led also by our hearts. Uh, for the second grader, I think there are some particular opportunities that, that are presented that allow us to really work on that, to work on developing a social environment where they're thinking from their heart. Uh, and I would say that most frequently in my second grade classes, I try to lead from the heart into their hands and from their hands into their head. Uh, that way, the concepts that we're, lead, that we're learning first come from some kind of a feeling, whether that feeling is excitement about a new activity that they're not sure what's going to happen or something that they think, oh, this is going to be a game. We can really be excited and have fun doing it. Or if it's feeling of a story, something that they're hearing and imagining and becoming really connected to those characters. One way or the other, they're being drawn into this emotional space that we as adults have helped to create consciously to give them one experience, an experience. Then from that feeling, they are led to be able to do something, to engage their hands, because education also shouldn't be a, a spectator sport. It's a, it's a participatory activity. And so by moving into drawing a picture from the story that they've heard, or playing a game that involves a math rhythm, or drawing something that really uh, challenges their sense of rhythm and precision, or doing a painting that allows them to explore 
they're then engaging their hands so that that feeling takes form. And after they've done those things, after they've drawn the picture and played the game and done the activity, then we can really draw out what is it that we're finding here? What's the concept? What's the idea? And so in that way, by the time you've gotten to that point, by the time they have heard the story about the gnomes and then drawn the picture of the house with the attic and the basement and moved all of the things around, and by the time we're several days later and now the house takes the form of an addition or subtraction problem and we're lining numbers up and we're borrowing and carrying, that concept has a greater depth and it has a connection for them. And so instead of just memorizing where we move the numbers, they now have a framework to be able to think, ah, these numbers have meaning and they have a feeling and I have a reason for it. And I think in that way, the students can really have a different level of experience with it. I feel like this keeps coming up for me in the episodes in this season that I was, it's so hard for me to imagine having sat in a more traditional classroom setting with more worksheets and textbooks, because in the early years, I was so engaged in the stories and the narrative that came along with the introduction of these, you know, traditionally very like academic um, well, you know, are still being academic when you're introducing them, but just such they were introduced in such an engaging way that I like loved learning these things. I loved going to school, you know, and and learning in this way. And I feel like listening to the guests in the season talk about these things is, just keeps bringing out the excitement in me, actually. So coming back to, again, that child and what they're experiencing, and now we've talked about how they're experiencing it and you're, how you're engaging with them. So what are the particular blocks and topics that you introduce in the second grade and why? Sure. Uh, let me just first say before that, uh, if I'm correct in my understanding, one of your teachers was Arthur Auer. And so- Yes, uh, yes. He was my I class can... teacher from grade grade one through four, and he was the best teacher. He was so amazing. And I've actually tried to get him to come on the podcast because we live very, he doesn't live too far from me now, but he's been a little bit hesitant. And I feel like at some point I have to get him on here. It's like a little bit my mission <laughs> at this point because yeah. I've talked about him so many times. I really hope you will. I should say that, you know, he was a teacher in the teacher training that I did and his enthusiasm, his uh, just interest in everything. Uh, I still hold that as a model. I think that that to me really shows anyone, any student, whether they're a child or an adult, that next level of learning. It's that teacher who shows through their example that the world is a fascinating place and that the people that you're in it with are fascinating people. And that made me excited. That made me really want to learn. And when I look back, it's teachers like that who really can get a message across. And um, so it, it's not surprising to me that you would have a hard time understanding a dry lesson having learned from Arthur, because I would expect that very <laughs> yes. few of his lessons were ever that way. Yeah. And, and also you, coming back to what you were mentioning yeah. about the questions each child brings as well. That's one of the things I remember so distinctly about him is that he was always, it always felt like he was listening, even though he was up at the front of the class teaching the entire time. And it also, I had, we had a quite a large class. We started with, oh gosh, I think, you know, he was, I, we were, I think his third class by the time he 
took us on. And I think we had 29 kids when we started in first grade. And then we kind of went 28, maybe 28 or 27 through fourth grade. But And when he left us, he went to go teach at, the, at teacher training. So I remember later as an adult looking back and thinking, you know, you see, because I went to a, a more traditional high school, I did not go to Waldorf High School, you see just how t- teachers engage with students and how their students that ask, quest- ask questions. And it always feels like there's some kind of like favoritism. But with him, it always felt like each of us was special and each of us <laughs> kind of had something special that we were offering in, even though we were all these different characters in this group. And that I feel looking back seems like a really amazing quality for a teacher to have. You know, I think it's the essential quality for a teacher to have. I think it's the essential quality for a human being to have if we're able to, to really encourage it in ourselves. Yeah. You know, it, that feeling of everyone is interesting, everyone has something to offer, it, it's what makes the world a rich place. It's what makes our opportunity to grow continue. You know, you might have a favorite food, but it's probably not the only thing you ever want to eat. And I think that for any class, one of the real gifts that we can offer is letting them see that in each other. Now, sometimes it does mean helping some of the students to learn to, to find more patience and help, helping other students to learn how to have more of a voice. So there is that little bit of encouragement, but developing interest is is something that we can do through conscious work. It allows us to really be engaged in the world. And what's really been interesting to me is that the more I've taught, the more I've realized that where at first you think, oh, that would be exhausting. How to really try and have that much attention, that much focus on that many students all the time. In reality, it is much less taxing to find interest in the world. The more you find to be interested in, the more the world is an interesting place and the more engaged we are in it. So it's almost like that that interest feeds itself and it creates a community and a class where people, the, the students and the adults, can really see one another as interesting people, as having something to offer. And hopefully that then the students that we work with will go out into the world and they'll look at the rest of the world in the same way that they saw their classmates as having something to offer them. If they can take a moment and listen, that there will be a message there for them to find too. That's my hope. But I don't think that was the question that we were <laughs> yes, getting uh, we, we um, digress a little bit. Yeah, the question sorry. was just about the blocks and the topics of second grade and why they are introduced. We both got so enthusiastic sure. about the different things that we got distracted there. So yeah, it's, I should have um, warned what, you. Um, (laughs) that's me too. Yeah. Okay, good. So the blocks of the second grade, this is an interesting place for me because I've had an opportunity now to really think about it. And I've taught two second grades and picked up in my first class after in third grade. So right after they had had a really experienced teacher teach them through the second grade. And so I've really gone through a kind of process of looking at what is offered in the second grade and why. And through the course of my teaching, I've changed how I look at that. So I suppose I'd start by saying that the blocks of second grade really alternate primarily between language arts skills and math skills. While we're bringing in aspects of uh, the social sciences and and the 
natural sciences, those are really more through experience, through nature study and through being outside. The students are learning direct experience of the natural world. And much of what we consider social sciences, we really wait until a little bit later in the grade. So, so primarily, they're developing skills in language arts and skills in math. And the avenue that that tends to take in most schools is through blocks about math that are focused on finding the beauty and patterns in numbers. And in some ways, the second grade math curriculum is really just an extension of the first grade math curriculum. It's looking at those same four operations. It's practicing the foundational facts to really build memorized rote fact uh, knowledge. And it's some slight expansion into possibly vertical operations, uh, learning to work up and down, and also into the beginnings of the ideas of borrowing and carrying. So that first algorithmic math, the first processes that you'll follow, but learning all of those things through imagination, through stories that create pictures, through uh, experiences that the children have so that they're finding what the algorithm is to solve a complex addition or subtraction problem, but they're doing it in a way that allows it to still be a living process, which fits pretty well. Second graders love a good challenge, and so they love the idea of trying to add really big numbers. And by teaching them this process, they can start to see, oh, if I follow this set of steps over and over, if, I'm, if I have this process scaffolded, then I can apply it and solve problems that seemed unthinkable in the past. And that's a pretty amazing thing for an eight-year-old. That's a pretty incredible gift to give them because it's something that really fits where they're headed in the rest of their life, that they can take these little discrete elements, you know, what is four plus three, and now they can start to apply it as part of a much larger problem. So the math blocks tend to be you know that it's finding patterns and it's practice and it's slightly expanding how they're using skills that are not necessarily new. They're really practicing things that they've done in the first grade. A lot of second grade is about that. It's strengthening those concepts and facts that they've already learned. You know, there's that neurological shift that's happening at this point where they're really myelinating all of these neurons to try and develop what will they need in the future. What what neural pathways, what learning modalities will they need to use in the future? And so the second grade gives a great opportunity to practice that. And math is probably the most uh, obvious place where that practice takes place. In language arts, the, the skills that we're really working towards are in reading and writing, in applying phonics and whole, world, whole word skills, uh, to be able to begin to encode and decode writing. Uh, to be able to take their ideas and put them into words and to be able to take words that other people have put down on paper or wherever they might find them and pull from that an idea. And most second graders are really eager to do that. They see that the world around them is full of language. They are eager to know what the signs on the highway say and how to show someone that they can read that favorite book. They also are starting to discover that this takes a lot of practice. And they are also really aware of the fact that the adult world of written words 
is a pretty daunting place when you first approach it, because many second graders want to be reading stories like they hear. They want to be reading rich, full stories, and yet their reading capacity is frequently not quite where their language capacity is. And so helping them to, again, use that practice, find opportunities to work with words so that they can start to bridge that gap is a big part of the language arts blocks. The content of the language arts blocks tends to be two areas traditionally. Uh, and the first, I guess, is pretty commonly taught as fables. And my first class through, I taught the fables, I think pretty much how other people had told me to teach them perhaps, or I had seen done in other classes, uh, which was to pull traditional fables, Aesop's primarily, and tell these stories. Rudolf Steiner does say in one of the few places where these stories are alluded to with the second grader that the way we tell the stories is pretty important. And that is that we tell the story, but we don't end it by saying the moral of the story is, and then giving it away. So we might tell this story about a crow wanting a drink of water and seeing this narrow vase and wondering how to get the water and finding that if they drop pebble after pebble into the vase, eventually the water level rises until it could get a drink. We would not finish that and give away the moral. Instead, the story is told, it's left, and then we come back to it the next day and engage in this conversation. And in my experience with second graders, that's where the real, the real magic happens, is by asking them what happened in the story. There's that factual recall. Can they remember the details? And then why do you think they did that? What do you think the crow could have learned from this experience? And it's, it's the second grader's gift that they can see that. They can really put themselves into the experience of these characters and their stories. They can really feel the challenge. They can really feel the discovery. They can also find some lessons that are, quite honestly, beyond what you might expect from an eight-year-old they really find a deeper knowledge. And I think that's one of the real gifts of that part of the language arts curriculum is that it lets them find these lessons for themselves. It lets them explore a deeper level of meaning. And by using symbols, these characters, to teach these lessons, and by letting them discover it on their own, I think we're giving them a deeper message that says that who they come to be in their lives shouldn't be something handed to them. It shouldn't be something that someone is saying, here is the moral that you should have, but rather that we as adults believe in them to be on a path of freedom where one day they can look at the lessons of their own life and say, what did I carry out of this? What is the moral of my story today? And I, I hope for the students that I've taught that someday they'll look back and, and find some of those lessons for themselves. I think most of you know by now how much I truly love all things Waldorf. What can I say? It's what I was fortunate enough to get to experience as a child, and now I'm so enjoying learning more about all of it with you listeners as an adult. 
You know the Waldorf goodies are beautiful, but where do you find that quality selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies? Well, you needn't look any further than Palumba. Palumba, loosely meaning wooden dove, was formed in 2007 to fill the need for the desire to have safe, high-quality, all-natural toys made in the U.S. Palumba's selection of products are carefully chosen to ensure that they're made of wood, wool, silk, and cotton, along with other natural materials. Palumba is also the only retailer that features the complete Camden Rose line. Camden Rose's commitment to durability, beauty, natural, and renewable materials make them the American leader in eco-friendly natural toy and children's furniture design. A handful of items come from a women's cooperative in Peru, while the majority of items are made in the U.S., At Palumba, they believe that imaginative, open-ended play with simple toys crafted from beautiful, natural materials offers children warmth and a sense of well-being when discovering their world. If you've listened to this show before or follow on social media, you know that Palumba is my favorite place to get all the quality Waldorf things. I would so love for you to check them out. You can shop their selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies at their website, palumba.com. That's P-A-L-U-M-B-A.com. The other blocks that are traditionally taught as part of the language arts curriculum And this is where, for me, I've had to do a lot of thinking and and kind of inner struggle with this. I've begun to think about them as stories of great people. Um, This is also some people will talk about the saints blocks. And I've intentionally moved away from that as part of looking at what have been traditions in the Waldorf schools and especially traditions that may be unintentionally exclusive. So in looking at this, I see these stories of great people blocks as being an extension of the fairy tales that were a part of first grade. In the first grade, we told these stories about archetypes of these characters who really don't, they don't need names. They are the royal person or they are the farmer. And it's their characteristics that really shine. In the set for the second grader, that doesn't really resonate as well. They don't want to hear a story that's that general. They want to know about a person. They want a person to have a name. They want to start to see the identity because they're beginning to feel their own identity. And so by telling them these stories about real people, people with names, people with histories, we're giving them this understanding of humanity, of who they might be. And I think it happens at a really essential time in their development where they're just beginning to have glimpses of what the adult world will be as they're struggling to learn to read or struggling to be patient with you as a teacher because they can already read and you're still working on phonics every day. (laughs) They are looking at those challenges of the adult world and wondering, how am I going to face that? And so we give them these stories and the The unifying theme for me of these stories is that they are people who have a set of values and they hold to those values often in the, in the face of great challenge. So I can see through that where in a cultural tradition that was heavily Christian and informed communities that were often heavily Christian, that the Catholic saints offered one inroad into those personalities. I'd like to believe that we as a society have moved far beyond that. And there are so many great examples of people who resonate 
really well with young children, children who are eight, who see these people as examples, people that they can emulate, people who are real, but are also somehow almost super real. And I think that's a real gift to let a student see that human beings are capable of greatness when we hold to the ideals that are true in our heart and when we persist despite any challenge that comes our way. Yeah, so we've had this traditional way to give students these examples. And now I think we have this incredible opportunity as Waldorf teachers and as parents working through this uh, to try and find who are the stories that really resonate with children now? How can we find these people that allow us as adults to explore cultures that maybe we're not a part of, to really look beyond our own experiences and find people who are worth emulating, people who are worth telling their stories, people who we would want eight-year-olds to look up to. And I've found that to be both really resonates well with the children and also really exciting as, as an adult to try and find some of those new stories, new great people for the students to look at. And how is it that you approach going about looking for those stories and what, you know, characteristics are you looking for, for instance, for those second graders to be able to emulate and also be excited about? You know, I, I think that again is a question of both who are we as teachers and who are the students in our class. And by that, I don't mean that we should tell stories that only give a reflection of the students who are before us or stories that are only things from our own tradition, but to try instead to look for those people who will be inspirations to the students. And I think one place that's important for us is who are we excited by? I think that as a teacher, I have found that if there's a story that I'm telling because I found it really interesting, then something really incredible happens. When you tell that story, when you give that lesson, it's like all of the students just lean in a little bit and they start to really hear it. And then the next day they come back and they remember it better and their questions have just a little bit more depth to them. I think that children have this incredible sense that of what we are feeling, this ability to see beyond the what we're putting in front of them, to hear deeper than our words. And when we are really excited by those stories, they are too. They're looking for us to give them that example. They're looking for us to educate them through our own emotional state. And so the, that's been my first uh, guidepost is who am I interested in learning about? Uh, I'm also really looking for people who really do have some kind of, um, some kind of a challenge in their life. It's, it's one thing for students to hear about people who do something really well. It's another thing for students who hear that what that person did really well was to struggle. Because I want my classes to grow up thinking there may be things that they are good at, but the thing that they can always be good at is trying. And I think we can give them that. Um, 
Another thing that I've really looked for is to try and find opportunities to give glimpses into cultures that they may not have a have an opportunity to see. Um, finding stories from different continents, finding stories from the local area, finding people who can come in to talk to them or finding people who can talk to me so that I can carry those stories has been a really good opportunity. And I think the last piece of it is a little bit trickier sometimes, but it's also in understanding what makes a good eight-year-old story and how is that different than what make a, what may make a good 14-year-old story. There are some figures, characters who it could be told in the second grade. You know, I'm thinking of Gandhi, for example, is a brilliant, wonderful story about an incredible per- person with deep, deep understanding and deep convictions who worked through great struggle. And that story could be told beautifully in the second grade. But the story of Gandhi also has an aspect of real social justice to it that resonates incredibly well with the 14-year-old. And so there's a little bit of this that I think, um, as is the work of of all new impulses in Waldorf education, that the teacher is responsible for knowing not just how it fits now, but where are we going? Where is it that the class is headed? And when will this be most useful? And, and when might you use it twice? But I think that's the other filter that I've used is, is this a story that I may want to hold back for a different purpose? Or is this a story that I can really find a chance to use now? Or in some cases, is this a story that I can tell more than once? Yes. And I, it's interesting because I just actually spoke to the teacher who's going to be speaking with me in the next episode about third grade. And one of the things that came up actually after we were recording that we were like feeling a little disappointed that we'd missed to speak about is how to bring in stories that were not traditional to Waldorf curriculum and how to do that in a way that's not tokenizing them how to do them how to do that in a way that's not just like i'm bringing in a different story because i feel like i should bring in a different story i basically kind of asking even how do you go a little bit deeper than in selecting those particular stories for that particular class because that's the need of the second grader i don't know if you can speak to that aspect at all yeah oh boy that's such a good question and such a real challenge and i i should say as a cis white man, I'm not the one who's best suited to tell many of these stories. I would, I mean, it would be, it would only make the problem worse if I were to really carry it that way. So I try to begin by honoring where the story comes from. And I try and do that not just with stories of other cultures, but with as many stories as I can to say, you know, this is a story that comes to us from across an ocean. And I don't get too far into geography frequently with my class, but to give them that feeling. And I might say, this is a story that's been passed down to us for a long time. I think by giving that sense, by taking a moment to honor that this is from a tradition that I'm not a part of, by taking a moment to be grateful for those who have continued that tradition, it perhaps to some extent that can balance some of the privilege that I have to be able to find it and bring it. I think that 
both tokenism and cultural appropriation are real challenges. But I also believe that to be afraid to create a diverse experience because we're afraid of that will only continue the problems that we already have. And so I think it is about doing that inner work as a teacher. Um, I think it is about not just as a teacher. I think that's the inner work that I see happening all over the world, really, is to begin to question, how can I step outside of my own experience, but without believing that I really understand the the experience of another person. I think there's not an easy answer to that. I think most of the work happens behind the scenes, as you will. It's it's like almost everything else that we do in teaching, that the real work happens not in the classroom and not before the students. The real work happens when we're at home trying to figure out what do we tell and how do we tell it and what are we going to do and why are we going to bring it in that way. If we're holding those questions, I think we're moving ourselves forward. If we're taking actions to address the questions, then I think we move a step further. And if we're looking actively for people who can lead us in taking those next steps, then we're taking a third step. I think there. this is an area that I would say is one of the biggest opportunities for change and one of the biggest places where I'm excited to see the new leadership that's beginning to take form in the Waldorf educational movement of people who are able to step outside of positions of privilege and ask for new voices. And those new voices that have always been there, but maybe not always been heard, who are being given an opportunity, being handed that chance finally to bring their voices so that we can hear people representing themselves instead of trying to represent them for them. Yeah. That made some sense. Yeah. I, it's just this whole conversation excites me so much because of my own personal experience with Waldorf education, which is very, it's so interesting because my husband and I, of course, we grew up, you know, feeling next to our peers, having gone to, you know, through more traditional um, education that we were exposed to at a younger age, way more of a like global historical perspective through, you know, the Egyptian stories that come later and all of that. And I just, so we always kind of felt that, but then now as adults, we're looking back at where there could have been more. And at the same time, the Waldorf movement is also beginning to ask those questions too. And I feel the potential for Waldorf education to meet to meet this, what we're talking about is so, so great because you're already doing this inner work to meet that child, to meet that class, that developmental age. And there's so much meaning in everything that you're doing, everything that you're bringing, everything that you're introducing through experience to these children, that that just alone, that, you know, coming, starting with that level of awareness already is, I feel pretty good, you know? So then to bring that level of awareness to um, the rest of what we need to introduce is, I think, a really great starting point, you know? And just even having this conversation just gets me really excited for the potential there. So I'm glad that you could speak to, you know, at least your personal experience exploring how to uh, navigate bringing in 
stories that were not traditionally a part of the Waldorf curriculum. And I kind of want to ask you about this as well, because I am not familiar as familiar with Steiner's work or lectures, but I am assuming that when he's talking about why you would talk about the uh, from what he initially had indicated, like the saints in the second grade, or we'll talk about the Hebrew stories in the third grade, or even later, the way that the traditionally back in you know Steiner's time in the early 20th century, how the subjects of kind of global ancient history were still through this Eurocentric lens. And I'm wondering, you know, the reason why he util- he was choosing these particular cultural stories was not for the cultures, it was for the stories themselves, the characters within the stories or the components within that creation story in this grade and this creation story in this grade. It And is that true? Is it really, it really does the kind of which culture you're choosing these stories from have relevance or, or not? Yeah. I mean, he, you know, I think he was giving Eurocentric stories because he was speaking in Europe primarily. And he was giving Christian-centric stories because he was speaking in traditionally Christian communities. I think that, you know, when I look at Waldorf education in its historic context, I see revolutions happening. I, I mean, a school system where, you know, gender wasn't an issue in the classroom is revolutionary at the time, um, where students who were in multiple religions would be separated and would go off to their own classes, but then also come back. It wasn't parochial, was really kind of a fantastic idea. So it's hard for me to look at that and think that with historic hindsight, that the idea of inclusivity would be in any way over an oversight. Um, I think it's an imperative for us to meet the children where they are, but also to have an idea of what is the world that they are going into. And I think to have expected that someone in the 1920s would have an understanding of what the global world and global connection would look like a hundred years later is more than I would expect of most other people. I certainly hope that no one will be judging you and I a hundred years from now on whether or not we could envision their future. I'm, I have a pretty hard time envisioning the future of my students when they go into high school. And in many ways, I've been wrong about that. But what we can do is to try and think, how can this these experiences broaden their perspective and allow them the capacity to see beyond? And in many ways, I think that the people who really formed the original schools, those teachers who created this this map that we're, as Waldorf teachers, often following, they were visionaries. They were every bit the visionary that Rudolf Steiner was. And they were holding those questions for their students at their time, in their place. And the answers that they came up with informed blocks that they taught. And those blocks that were taught were passed down. And I mean, I should also really recognize that the privilege that I have in looking at how to expand the curriculum, how to really look at new impulses, is also a result of the fact that I've had an opportunity to do this more than once. 
But the first time I went through with my class, I wasn't able to bring those impulses because I was still trying to understand what it was that I was doing. I was still trying to get a picture of the developing human being and know kind of where do the where do the blocks fit together? Um, how am I going to get from grade two to grade three? I now have the opportunity to look a little bit more broadly. And now I feel like I've gotten the privilege to be able to look beyond that and say, okay, what were those impulses? And how can we meet them in a new way? What is it that these children need that those students in Austria in the 1920s or New York in the 1930s needed differently? And one thing that I really see in that is that the students today really need a broad picture. They need pictures of all kinds of different people so that they can really see human beings as a spectrum and that that spectrum is something that is some is wonderful. So I think it's important to keep both the context of where the ideas came from and also the idea that the traditions that evolve from those impulses are not meant to be fixed. They aren't meant to be set in stone. Waldorf education should not be dogmatic. It should be something that is living. It should be something that's being created by people who are holding these questions and then looking at the students in front of them and figuring out what answers are they bringing. And I think if we do that, we keep finding the new, the new things. Yes, I think I think I maybe have mentioned this somewhere in the podcast before that my husband and I have, you know, although we've looked back at our Waldorf education and thought to ourselves, there wasn't a teacher at some point who's who told us how to address these questions in our 30s in 2020 or 2021. But the I feel like the way that humanity as an overarching theme of like importance in value and the sorts of lessons that we learned. I mean, my husband and I, if you asked us some of Aesop's fables now, I honestly don't even know if we could remember (laughs) one or two, but did we, you know, did we learn things like courage and approaching questions like this as adults with courage and openness? I don't know. Those are things that I feel like we are quite capable of doing. And it's not that, you know, people are not capable of doing those things who did not go to Waldorf school, but I feel that the education that we received really gave us the tools to address what is coming up in the world now. And I feel that's such a gift. And it's interesting, I think, to to really think about what children will be meeting 20, 30 years from now. It's incredible, actually. Um, you know, Waldorf starts at that point of trying to prepare that child to meet that world is is such a seed of of interest and intrigue for me certainly and I'm sure for many parents. So, I am wondering if you could actually maybe speak to parents, maybe homeschooling parents too about this second grader and just in the home and in the home life if there's anything you felt could be supportive of that child at that developmental age that you could offer. Yeah. Boy, the second grader. The, <laughs> the second graders are pictures of extreme. They are. They can be so kind and caring, and seemingly at the flip of a switch, they can also be angry and callous. Uh, they can be careful, devoted, attentive learners, and 
in a breath. They can be absolutely distractible and move from one thing to another. They're constantly in motion. The second grade is often a place of conflict. It's often a place where arguments are really common. It can be a place where students start to really turn inward. And often in second graders, you can start to hear some real sadness. Uh, second grade for some students is the first place where they'll say things like, I don't really like school, or I don't really have any friends. And as adults working with children, and especially I'm sure for parents working with students at this age, that can be heartbreaking. It's important, I think, to, re to remember that when students are bringing those kinds of extreme shifts back and forth, that what we can really do to help them is show them consistency, is give them an example of a central rudder, of a keel that can hold their life in course. And I think that that's something that's really crucial at this age, that when those students are really engaged, that we are finding ways to pull them out of that thing that they might do for four hours without interruption. And we might bring their attention to something else. By the same token, to be able to say, if they are jumping from thing to thing and constantly distracted, that we can keep bringing them back so that they're going to learn focus, so that they can balance those extremes. I think it's really helpful for the second grader that when they experience those really strong feelings, especially around social experiences, conflicts and friendship and loneliness, that they can hear from adults that that's okay, that that's normal, that we all feel lonely sometimes, that it can be really hard to feel disappointed, and that it's all right to be angry with someone, but let's find out how we can tell them about that. And if, if the eight-year-old can feel from us as adults that even when their world is full of chaos, that they have a safe, steady place to go back to, then it lets them feel that security in their world that it's okay to be upset and that it's okay for things to fail because they can always come back and they can look forward to some point in their future where they too can be the constant in someone else's life. I think that's a crucial part of this age, that, that letting them experience some of those extremes, but also helping to bring them back into balance and keeping that as this rhythmic flow, um, giving them moments in their day where the rhythm and routine is so strong that they can almost sink into it like a meditation, and also making sure that there are parts of their day where there's something unexpected, something surprising, some aspect of real joy and real sorrow, some aspect of real determination and practice, and also something completely new. So that we are both holding the center and we're also creating this breath that allows the the new experience and new growth to happen. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. I oh, sure. can't thank you enough for speaking with me today. This was it's just such a nice 
you know, looking at this year and at this age and, and thank you so much again. Oh, I'm really, really glad to be here. And, and again, I'm so grateful for, to you for putting these together and for making this kind of a resource and for asking the questions. You know, it, what you said earlier about your husband and you looking back on your experience, I, I think that that is what we look for as teachers. Whether or not my students remember any story I ever tell them doesn't matter at all. Even though so much work goes into all of those, that's not what we're really working for. But I'm willing to guess that Arthur would look at a student like you who would see a need in the community to get this kind of information, would see an avenue and an opportunity, and then not only have the ability and capacity to build a website and create a podcast, but then the will and determination to see it through for several seasons that's Waldorf education. That's what we really look for. And I think for every student in every one of our classes and every child of every parent who's on this path, that's what they're looking for. It's not to teach students a thing that they will need to know in the future, but to teach them the capacities that they'll need, whatever challenge that they choose to apply themselves to, they'll have the ability to meet it. You know, and I think that's a pretty remarkable gift to give to kids. Well, that was a lovely compliment. Thank you. And thank you again. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Ashley. I really appreciate it. Thank you all so much for listening in. Know that the show notes page for this episode can be found at waldorfy.com forward slash second grade. Quickly, I want to give an extra special thanks to all of the Walderview Patreon supporters. I really love running this show. I love connecting with you through this platform and over on social media. And thanks to our Patreon support, I am able to do this. So thank you so much. What is Patreon, you may be wondering? Patreon is a platform where you can support creators like myself to create content that you love with a small monthly contribution. My intention with this podcast as a resource was always that it be free and accessible for all, but unfortunately, free doesn't pay the bills. If you want to learn more about supporting the show on Patreon, please visit waldorfy.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Now, also, I want to thank all of you listening to. I know that some of you don't have that little bit extra to support the show. No problem. I love reading your reviews on Apple Podcasts. I love when you share episodes on social media. I see you too, and I want to thank you. Even just listening is supporting. So, so much gratitude from me to you. Again, super special thanks to our podcast supporters, Palumba and Soft Star Shoes. Remember that you can receive 10% off your order at Soft Star Shoes through April 12th, 2021 using the coupon code WALDORFEE at checkout. Remember that there are a few exclusions that do apply there, and I did mention those earlier in the episode when I talked about my love of Soft Star Shoes. Thank you all again so much for listening in, everybody. Be well. <laughs>